นโมทัสสะคุณวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะคุณวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะคุณวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสนี่เป็นวันแรกของเดือนมกราคมที่ชี Photograph associated with the teaching, a picture of Lumpur Liam visiting temple, forest monastery uh, near Boston with uh, the abbot there, Ajahn Jayanto, and several of the other community members. And this encouragement to. Recognize to be alert to the opportunity we have to receive teachings. It's worth registering. If we don't receive teachings, I don't know about you, but if I stop to think about what my life would be like. If I hadn't received spiritual teachings, I received a good enough education with regards to reading, writing, and arithmetic, but I'm really grateful, really, really grateful that one way or another I came across Dhamma teachings. And these teachings, in this particular tradition, Theravadan Buddhist teachings, the way that they are offered, uh, encourage individuals to take responsibility for their spiritual practice. This is not merely a belief system. Yeah. I think of the encouragement that, again, that I personally received from. Living with Ajahn Tate and living with Ajahn Chah and living with Ajahn Sumato, these very well-practiced monks, and it's not that they told me what to do, and it's certainly not that they told me that I should 
and believe in them, not at all. Mm-hmm. The, the tone, the feeling, the culture uh, of the spiritual tradition is one of encouraging individuals to take responsibility for themselves. And of course, as we uh, most of us would know that the Buddha pointed out, he said, I can but point the way. The Tathagata can but point the way. And even the Buddha himself, that's the extent of the teaching. He can point the way, but then it's up to us. And So yes, there's uh, encouragement to recognize the place of Kalyanamitta or spiritual companions, true friends, good friends on the journey and that is precious when we come across companions that we can trust are going to support us in helpful ways and, but there, there isn't any encouragement to blindly believe you know, blind belief in fact is positively discouraged it's referred to as a, a misappreciation or a misappropriation of the teachings they were blindly believing actually uh, leads to uh, being irresponsible, not individually responsible. So, so that we've received these teachings and the way in which the teachings have been given us is certainly something that uh, can feel hugely grateful for. And, and to heed this encouragement to follow in a skillful way and to follow what the teacher says, not believing. In fact, learning how to question. Learning how to question. Yeah. The right kind of questioning makes us stronger. Yeah. If we, when we ask a question, it's because we're interested. Yeah. And interest is the essence of this spiritual journey. Yeah. Second factor of the seven factors of enlightenment, Dhamma Vichaya, investigation, interest. All the great teachers using various skillful means to trigger, stimulate, nourish our interest, to inspire our interest in asking questions, the right kind of questions at the right time. And when we ask questions, then that within us, which wants to know reality, is interested in reality, interested in seeing beyond the stories, interested in seeing beyond the fantasies that we entertain. That within us is encouraged, is nourished. So asking questions, learning how to ask questions at the right time and the right way, asking questions with an open heart, acknowledging acknowledging that we don't know, asking questions with an appreciation of the fact that we don't know. The fact that we don't know is not something to feel embarrassed about. Of course we don't know. And if we knew, we wouldn't be suffering so much. If more people knew, there wouldn't be so much suffering in the world. Clearly, hardly anybody really knows what they're doing. Pretty well everybody's having a hard time. Life is a struggle. 
And for the awakened ones, the realized beings, there is no struggle. There's difficulties, and getting old and having pain is difficult, but but there's no struggle, and that's the that's the invitation of the spiritual teaching to reach the end of struggling. So we don't have to apologize for not knowing. Well, we could, we probably should apologize for not asking questions. And in fact, in the um, for us in our monastic discipline, uh, if you don't know about some particular training rule and you don't ask, then it's that's against the training. So it's also in that short quote there of teachings from Ajahn Chah. It's noteworthy how. He refers to the the stages of training or the stages of awakening. How you know, it's the the last line there says, not just until we see dhamma in our own hearts, but until we are dhamma, and before we come across teachings that we recognise as really relevant and worth investing in uh, most of just getting around just eating and sleeping and, and looking at things and listening to things without any awareness that uh, we're vulnerable uh, we're vulnerable to creating uh, a huge amount of suffering for ourselves and for each other uh, we we don't even know that we don't know. We're unaware of the level of our unawareness. We don't even know that there's a real reality. We don't know that there's an option to cultivate consciousness. We don't know that this is a possibility. Most of us, when we start out, there may be a few rare individuals who have exceptional intuitive wisdom who... Mm, intuit this possibility from early on in life but most of us we're unaware of the degree of unawareness and we're just getting around and looking at things and eating whatever we want to eat and saying whatever we want to say and not aware that there are consequences not aware of the law of karma not aware that there's work to do beyond reading, writing and arithmetic the spiritual work we're not aware of that dimension but if we are fortunate enough and and we suffer enough and we come across real teachings then something is quickened within us uh, an interest we're all familiar with the story of the, the Buddha at the age of 29 when seeing old age sickness and death uh, this interest to run what is this all there is get old get sick and die isn't there any more isn't there anything else to this existence and that intuition that maybe there's something more uh, that's that's really the beginning of the spiritual journey that we, we start to intuit that maybe maybe there is some work to do and if we we start looking for and hopefully coming across real Dhamma Dhamma teachings truly relevant they really ring a bell within us and 
and we start thinking, oh, right, actually there's some work to do. And we start to recognize the, the degree of our unawareness. And so we start to do some work, and then we maybe start to understand a few things conceptually, initially, and then maybe there's some shift in perspective and uh, awareness realigns and we start to recognize and our faith, our, our trust, our confidence is affirmed. We start to actually understand some things at an initial level. And then maybe that quote from Ajahn Chah's teachings there says, maybe some people reach the point of seeing Dhamma in their own heart. But, as again, as it points out there, don't stop there. Mm. Keep practicing until we are Dhamma. Mm. Mm. And what Ajahn Chah is referring to there is uh, keep working until even any conceited perception of I understanding anything is removed. Yeah. There's no distance, there's no separation, there's no I understanding anything. Yeah. There's just being at one with the way things are. Yeah. So this encouragement that the Buddha and all the great teachers offer us to keep asking questions the right way in the right time. Recognizing for ourselves where, or beginning to recognize ourselves, where, when and how we do what we're doing that creates suffering. So all of us here, for instance, we're already, obviously, we know that we have got some work to do. We already know to some degree, that we don't know. We're already aware that uh, our level of awareness is not really adequate. And so we have some appreciation of uh, the place and practice of gratitude and the place and practice for generosity, the place and practice for impeccability, the value of cultivating the discipline of attention, training our minds. We, we see this, but we still keep getting fooled. Over and over again, we keep getting fooled by life. We still suffer. So we appreciate these things, generosity, gratitude, impeccability, discipline of attention, seeing all oh, these things are important. But that's not the point of the training. In a way, it's the preparation. It's essential, absolutely it's essential. But it's the same as like, it's important that we keep our kitchen clean and it's important that you go shopping at the supermarket, that you you check to see that you're buying healthy food. You're not just impressed by the fancy label or you know, just buy that which is cheapest. You stop and consider, we use intelligence to check the food that we're buying and, and then preparing the food and cooking the food in a way that doesn't take all the goodness out of it. Uh, however, we could do all that and still starve to death, couldn't we? That's not, that's not the point. 
The point is surely, of course, to eat the food, to be nourished by the food. That's the point. And likewise, in the case of spiritual practice, the point is to get to the point where we can recognize where, when and how we're doing what we're doing that's creating suffering. So we can stop doing that. Once again, it's not just believing, it's not just hoping that something good's going to sort out later, but actually coming to that point where we really start to feel responsible and interested again. Where, when, how do I do what I do that creates suffering? That means we get lost. We misperceive situations. And I was talking this morning at the mealtime, the people who gathered uh, make meal offerings this morning uh, about how we get lost in you know, even agreeable situations. We don't just get lost in disagreeable, we get lost in agreeable situations like lovely sunny weather like we've been having. If you're not careful, you can get too much. You get sunburnt. And you get sunburnt often enough and you end up getting cancer. It's not the problem with the sun, is it? What's the problem? The problem is where, when and how do we do what we're doing that's created the problem? We're not knowing the right amount. Not knowing the right amount of sun. Not knowing the right amount with regards to how we engage with life. Like see something on the news or read something in the newspaper and indignation arises. The feeling of indignation arises. Well, feeling concerned about what's going on or even feeling aversion to abuse and misuse of power and influence. That's natural. That's perfectly suitable. But to go into indignation and hatred, that's something else. Righteous indignation. How dare they do that? What happens in our hearts when we do that is we lock ourselves into being divided, us and them, me and you. We create enemies. Awakened beings, realized beings, don't have any enemies. doesn't mean to say they like everything that's going on. doesn't mean to say they don't have the ability to discern things. They can see clearly. And, but they don't get lost in the world. They don't get lost. They don't misperceive the world. They don't misperceive liking. They don't misperceive disliking. It's nice to sit in the sun. Likeable condition. But they don't misperceive it. It's dislikable to read about abuse of power and influence. It's definitely dislikable. But they don't get lost in disliking and so the heart doesn't give rise to hatred. They don't become divided and just deeply disturbed and thereby compromising intelligence and interfering with the ability to seriously contemplate that which they're experiencing. So this possibility of 
addressing our misperception of something that uh, our teachers encourage us. Recognizing, recognizing where, when, and how we misperceive. Really taking it on board. Recently, a good friend of mine wrote and uh, directed me to a uh, TED talk by uh, this fellow who I think was a, a cognitive scientist and and um, he was highlighting some of these experiments that in cognitive science they do which prove the, the, the faulty perceptions that we all suffer from. And a couple of the examples he gave of showing this drawing of... Uh, a couple of boxes laid at different angles. And, and then the question is, you look at this line here and that line there, and which line is the longest? And according to perceptions, it's quite clear, that one is longer. That one is longer, definitely. And then you measure them, it turns out both lines are exactly the same length. But the perceptions, no, no, that one's longer. It really looks that way, it really, really looks that way. Yeah. Another example is colour. Yeah. These two little boxes, and depending on the colour that surround, colours that surround these two boxes, one looks to be this colour, and the other looks to be a different colour. You remove all the other coloured boxes around them, and you realise that the two boxes were an identical colour. Yeah. Our perception is fooled. We're fooled. We're easily fooled. On mundane level of such examples, but also on more important levels, on the heart level. Like one of the biggest misperceptions we have is about life and death. Death. Nobody has ever been born that didn't die, and yet isn't it the case that... Most people, most of the time, consider death as some sort of a failure. Something's going wrong. We probably feel that way ourselves. Death is something wrong. Shouldn't happen. And yet it's guaranteed to happen. Absolutely guaranteed to happen. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, human beings, human consciousness has been observing this fact. If you're born, you die. And yet still here we are with this misperception with regards to death. The amount of grief, the amount of pain, sorrow, despair over this perfectly natural occurrence. What's going on? What's the reality? That's the kind of question that our teachers want us to ask. That's the kind of question that our teachers asked. What really are we afraid of? When we say we're afraid of death, what are we really, in reality, in terms of reality, what are we really afraid of? What is our perception, what is the reality of our perception of life, of self, and the ending of self? What is the reality, what is the actuality? Well, The Buddha's encouragement, of course, with regards to life and death was to hold up this contemplation on Maranasati, the specific directing of attention towards mortality. To really, to pick this 
topic up and give ourselves into uh, a deep and sensitive contemplation of, of what's really going on. When we see death, when we come across death, yeah. not to merely distract ourselves from it, but to get interested in it. get interested to see where we where we misperceive and so in other words what we're doing here is where the Buddha is encouraging us to train our perceptions so as to see oh that was false there's a Dhammapada verse or two Dhammapada verses two of my favorite verses verse 11 and verse 12 verse 11 says when you mistake the false for the real and the real for the false you live a life of falsity and verse 12 said, when you see the false as the false and the real as the real, you attain to the perfectly real. Mm-hmm. Mistaking the false for the real and the real for the false, that's what we're up to a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. We think the pleasant sensations are something that we actually will become more happy if we cling to. But actually, we spoil them. When we cling to pleasure, we actually spoil the pleasure. As all conditions change and pleasure starts to pass, we're holding on to it and create stress. If there's unpleasant sensations, we're hanging on to it and we think it's going to last forever and we create concepts, crazy concepts, like eternal hell. How could a condition, how could something that has arisen ever be eternal? so crazy notions occur as a result of our misperception and so our teachers are encouraging us to take up this task of of retraining perceptions questioning now this is not a pathological form of doubting ourselves This is functional doubt. This is the doubt that inspired the Buddha when he was 29. Is there an alternative? Is there a way of realizing freedom from struggle? Or are we obliged to just put up with this? That's a really helpful question. So in our own daily life, we're encouraged to ask these kind of questions. And when we recognize that we get something wrong, we stop and register, oh, right, that perception was inaccurate, that was false. This is seeing the false as the false. If we mistake the false for the real and the real for the false, then we live a life of falsity. But contemplating the false as the false, this is the practice. And to see that, oh, right, that was you know, like you get sunburned. You know, all right, it definitely felt good, but <laughs> didn't know the right amount. Mm. Mm. And hopefully, hopefully we learn. Mm. I remember some years ago, I was out uh, walking through the countryside, and I think it's probably a time before I had glasses, and I, I thought that I was walking towards a very beautiful tree. The beautiful, maybe it was uh, uh, a red maple or something. 
some very attractive looking tree in the distance. I, I walked towards that tree and check it out. But when I got there, I realized it was just a very unattractive, rusty old barn. It wasn't a beautiful tree at all. Hey? Yeah. Now, when that happens, something like that happens, you go, right. the, the trick, the skill, is to not just feel embarrassed and think, oh, I made a mistake there. Oh, no, that's interesting. That's interesting. We got fooled by that. Got fooled into thinking something that was worth following when it wasn't. Yeah? Or like self-promoting. In a conversation and we get carried away talking about how wonderful we are and all our abilities and, and skills and experiences. And, yeah. and then on your own later on, you're quiet and start feeling... Oops, got a bit carried away there. Uh, You feel the physical consequence, the heat of embarrassment, that in the body, that rush of heat of feeling ashamed for exaggerating, self-promoting. Instead of just trying to distract ourselves, get interested in that. That's the training. That perception, the idea that self-promoting is going to somehow bring benefit, that perception was inaccurate. Mm. My perceptions are unreliable. I need to pay attention. I need to be careful. Really embracing this, really... This is following the example of our teachers, following in the footsteps of our teachers. This is what our teachers did. They, They questioned the assumptions that they had about reality until they reached real reality. If we're not careful, we're not motivated enough or educated enough or inspired enough or daring enough, because it does take daring to turn around and admit that we're wrong. If we don't have such motivation then regrettably we just live a life of distraction. And that is why we don't learn. We've heard the teachings and and yet we keep making mistakes over and over again because of our addiction to distraction. I was talking a few days ago, somebody, a um, young uh, novice in Samanera at one of our other monasteries called me up for a conversation and in the course of the conversation this fellow was explaining how his practice had changed a lot lately and he's um, I remember when he first joined the community he's really super educated, super brainy fellow had a really very very responsible job and when he first joined the community went about his practice, making all sorts of lists of how he had to spend his time and, and strategies and schedules every day, pages and pages of notes, uh, incredible detail, attention, and, and very mm, uh, subtle uh, questioning of uh, aspects of the teachings and you know, quite a um, complex it struck me quite a complex approach. But he was saying that um, 
has changed a lot and he reads almost nothing these days and he's just really interested in contemplating the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, cessation of suffering, the path leading to cessation of suffering. But he said it puzzled him how come he was so interested and found it so interesting, so appealing to contemplate suffering. He was puzzled by this. And my observation of that and my comment to that was, well, it's because you basically stop distracting yourself. It takes a lot of energy to distract ourselves from the suffering of life, our own suffering and the suffering of others. But that's what most of culture is about. Most of culture is about distracting ourselves from the suffering, the fear of our mortality, fear of disappointment, fear of loss, memories of loss, worry, anxiety, confusion, despair. Even the Buddha, it took some years for the Buddha to discipline his attention and to burn through the resistance to reality, to turn around to actually look directly at suffering and see the cause of suffering and realize the freedom from suffering. Now, Likewise for us, our addiction to distraction means that it takes a lot of skillful effort, a lot of patience, a lot of determination, a lot of kindness, a lot of gentleness, a lot of willingness, before we can burn through our habitual distracting ourselves, the, the stories we've been telling ourselves or the lies we've been telling ourselves. But when we stop distracting ourselves, when we stop spending energy on lying about reality and say it's like this, it really feels good. And there's all this energy that was being used up in distraction becomes available for presence. Yeah. And as is mentioned in the Four Noble Truths, uh, the biggest mm-hmm. misperception that we all suffer from, of course, is uh, the reality of, of desire. Mm-hmm. Desire really looks like something we should grasp and follow. Which is again, even the Buddha took him a good long while before he was able to stop and look directly at the momentum of desire and see through it and see that clinging to desire was the cause of suffering. It's not that desire is the suffering, desire is just the movement. Desire is like fire, it's just an element of nature. But what is the understanding? And the understanding with regards to fire determines our relationship with fire. When we have an uninformed understanding, when we have a misperception of fire, as children do, which is why they need to be protected, children think fire is something that looks like fun to get close to. But you get too close to it, you really get burned, get hurt, badly, possibly. Hopefully not, but it's possible. 
But all of us learn that with regards to fire because that's uh, very physical and, and more obvious. But on the heart level, on the more subtle level, most of us start out completely unaware that clinging to desire actually creates restlessness, creates dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction is the direct consequence of identifying as that movement that we call desire. But do we see that? We might know the theory, but do we see it? Do we see it? Even the capacity to see clearly can take a long while. We need a mature level of mindfulness and sense restraint to have enough composure so that when a moment of wanting arises that we don't automatically follow it. Or automatically reject it. Indulging and denying both reactions. But mindful relationship to desire, or even to be able to mindfully investigate our relationship with desire, takes a well-cultivated level of maturity. Mature mindfulness, mature sense restraint. The three basic tools that I often refer to as our spiritual toolkit, mindfulness, sense restraint, and wise reflection. Before we can exercise wise reflection and ask the question, What's going on here? Why am I suffering over this? Wanting. Before we can even ask that question with enough steadiness and accuracy and presence, we need to have invested in mindfulness and sense restraint. But if we have invested in that, which again is what our, the example of our teachers offers us encouragement in, then there's a possibility to... to Question this perception, this actually this misperception that clinging to desire is somehow going to make us feel good. Yeah. It doesn't. We get burnt yeah. every time. Tanha, craving of any kind, always is suffering. Desire itself is not the suffering, it's the clinging to desire, the craving that's the suffering. So the Buddha spoke about this over and over again on many occasions and said it's through not seeing two things that you stay stuck in this unfortunate circumstance. Not seeing two things. Not seeing suffering, not seeing the cause of suffering. So this is the encouragement to ask the right question at the right time in the right way with interest with regards to suffering and the cause of suffering to find out what we do, where we do that which causes suffering to arise if we do get interested in this then we get energised becomes something that we want to be doing. Now, for those who don't have a adequate education in this territory, this kind of conversation doesn't really make much sense. It maybe sounds sounds a little weird, you know, talking about suffering all the time. But actually, suffering is the most interesting thing 
Because suffering is, the, is that which we want to be free from. But the idea of running away from suffering, hoping we're going to get free from it, no way. But it hurts. I want to get away from it. Well, that's just the same as like when you've got, you've got a wound on your hand and it's, you know, the wound is healing. You say, it's itchy, I want to scratch it. Well, you can scratch it, but it'll just, just get infected again. Yeah. Yeah. If you've ever had that, seen those a dog with a mange, it's a very unpleasant thing to see. But yeah. even really clever dogs don't have the intelligence to know that when they've got the mange and it's healing, they shouldn't scratch. And they can't stop scratching, so they scratch, and so it gets worse. And they scratch and it gets worse, and it's a very sad, very sad condition. Mm. The image, in fact, that the Buddha gave is that of a leper who suffering with the leprous sores and to escape you know, somebody who's deluded with regards to the nature of desire and caught up in craving said it's like a leper. and To escape the pain of their leprous sores, they put it over a charcoal brazier and the burning heat gives them a break from the pain of their leprous sores. You know. Pretty vivid image. But the image is pointing to that which we do, which actually creates the suffering that we're all trying to be free from. And so it's important that as we ask these questions, this is not just an intellectual exercise. If we approach this as just an intellectual exercise, then it probably doesn't make much sense at all. But this is a feeling investigation. Hmm. Like when we're feeling greed for food. What does that really feel like? There's no point in thinking, oh, the Buddha said we should let go of craving. That's not going to do it. But stop thinking and come into the body and feel that I want. I want to eat more getting hot and bothered and maybe even your pulse rate increases or indignation when you read something or hear something that's offensive and can we just feel it and investigate what's going on or do we just go up into our heads and start thinking about who's to blame and maybe going onto Twitter and tweeting about how false or fake everybody is except for us and that's understandable behaviour of children children can we expect them to do that but but when you start to reflect really on reality that doesn't work it's like scratching an itch you've got to be willing to inhibit the impulse I really want to scratch that yeah we've got to inhibit that Sensory strength. Without mindfulness, without sensory strength, then we can't really exercise wise reflection. We can't really ask the right questions at the right time in the right way, which directs attention to seeing the real cause, to being there at the moment when clinging is happening, because that's when letting go happens. The right quality of attention at the right time, when clinging is about to happen and you see it, you don't have to do that. 
Clinging is not an obligation. Clinging is a choice. You have the power to not cling. And once you've seen that, well, letting go has already happened. And you, you just know the benefit. But once again, this is a feeling investigation. You need to be willing to turn attention around to stop looking out and following our thinking. Uh, always thinking is just the same as like always looking at things and listening to things and tasting things and smelling things, like following the outflows, yeah. the outflows of the heart that the Buddha talked about. Kamasava, Bhavasava, Ditasava, Avichasava, the four outflows, yeah. these the heart energy flowing out, outflow of sensuality, the outflow of view, the outflow of becoming, the outflow of ignorance, these deep habits of the heart whereby we lose energy. Mm -hmm. Just following that means that we don't get the message. But if we train ourselves adequately... Once again, with mindfulness, sense restraint, maybe there's a moment when we're there and we can start to f- investigate in a feeling way. As long as we're still thinking about the cause of suffering, yeah. it's not going to bring about letting go. We use thinking, we start out with thinking, it's very normal. We use thinking to give direction to attention. But then as practice proceeds, we need to feel where our attention is being directed. Come back to the body, feel inwards. To always be following thinking, remembering what we've heard somebody else say about suffering or thinking about what the books have said about suffering. That's like if if you've got something in your eye and you look in the mirror, You see there's an object in your eye and then you start poking away at the mirror trying to move the object. Well, that's that's looking in the wrong direction. We need to turn attention around and feel inwards. These questions that direct attention in a way that bring about real letting go This is a feeling inquiry. This is retraining perception. First recognizing that our perceptions are flawed and then using the disciplines to retrain attention, retrain perception until letting go happens. Thank you very much this evening for your attention namo bhagavate vasudevaya